1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. My guest today in the program is Daniel Alexander-Jones, author of the new book, Love Like Light, Plays and Performance Texts. Daniel, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
1: So this is is quite a, as we were talking before we started recording. This is quite a substantial record of of your writing over the past couple of decades. How did the idea come about to kind of put together such a kind of career spanning, uh, or at least you know for the first part of your career, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a, a book like that? Well, I
0: you know I've had so many friends over the years who encouraged me to publish my work, given that a lot of the work. That is in the volume is work that was grounded in a in a space between um, more traditional ideas about writing a play and writing a text and work that was generated in performance through devising or collaboration. And they said, you know, your work once it happens goes away. And we would love to be able to teach your work or share your work with other people. Um, and you haven't published. So Pony up, you know, figure out a way to get the work out there. And uh, this was maybe about three or four years ago. Um, I started to think about what that would look like and went back through, you know, all of the projects that I'd made and began to identify the pieces that would, I think, mark particular moments in the journey but also maybe try to show as many facets of my my body of work as possible. And then I I said, gosh, none of this I think would make sense to a a reader coming at it cold if I don't put it in context. Mm -hmm. So I started writing an introductory essay and, and what happened is that essay led me to write an entirely different book. So I put this on the shelf <laughs> and I ended up writing this, the, uh, like a draft, a manuscript of a, of a memoir project about my relationship with my theatrical mentors. And, it, and once I had completed that, I began to be in contact with Kate Kramer at 53rd State Press. And I had been working, uh, writing an introduction for one of the pieces they published a couple years ago. Uh, the People's Republic of Valerie living room edition by my dear friend, Kristen Cosmas. And in conversation with Kate, she said, Hey, you know, are there any pieces of yours that I can read? And I said, you want to buy a play? Like, as a matter of fact, like I have, you know, I, I kind of curated this whole group, but I didn't end up doing anything with it. And she surprised me. She said, I would love to publish a kind of big old volume of your work, and we started a dialogue. This is probably twenty eighteen going into twenty nineteen, and began that process. So it it really uh, stretched from that time through the pandemic, um, and it became this really joyful exploration of this prior work with a with a, an incredible uh, editor and I think new friend in the field, Kate, who offered such great. Questions and counsel, and 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 kind of editorial prowess in terms of thinking of how it might all fit together. So, uh, in the end, I ended up making the very thing I had intended, even though it took a lot of detours.
1: Mm-hmm. And and even. As the kind of substantial volume that it is, it's still in some ways the tip of the iceberg. I think there's one piece that's like part ten in a twelve part cycle, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, right. so, yeah
0: you know, exactly, exactly, it's,
1: exactly. It's sort of a sampler of all of all the different facets of your performance, but it's it's in no way like a, a definitive collection.
0: No, um, but but I, I can't imagine. I think that would probably kill someone <laughs> tried to pick it up, right? Now. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And I'm, I'm so interested in this idea of, you know, people mm-hmm. wanting your work to be available in order to be able to teach it, because I do feel yeah. like, you know, your work is grounded in, a, you know, kind of black aesthetic radical tradition and, and, and also in, in kind of a queer aesthetic tradition. And both of those, I think, are kind of underpublished traditions. So to have mm-hmm. something like this, mm-hmm. I think really, you know, fills a gap not just in pre- preserving your work, but in kind of, you know, preserving the, the, the stream that you situate yourself in.
0: I'm so glad to hear you say that because that's hugely important to me. And as someone who grew up getting to go and spend so many hours in in our public library, I grew up in Springfield, Massachusetts, and the library was this sacred place. And it was our main library was actually a beautiful neoclassical building that was right across the street from the high school I went to. And, you know, that was a haven you know, for a nerdy queer black kid to be able to go and like live among the books. And and the sense that I actually began to find many of the the voices that would shape my own artistic understanding, my aesthetic and my, my life practice on the shelves of that book, uh, excuse me, on the shelves of that library mm-hmm. in books that, you know, were some of the rare books that were published I'm thinking particularly about my encounter with the work of Entesaki Shange and mm-hmm. how revelatory it was as a as a teenager to open up her writing I remember standing in the sh- in the little space between the bookshelves uh, on the second floor of the research room looking at her plays and shaking I was like I get this I understand this 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 feels like a kind of home place for me. Um, And, you know, as I began to get to know my, my living mentors at that, you know, juncture, but you know, from teenage years through my early mid twenties um, and I encountered their work and I realized so many of the incredible pieces that changed my life were actually pieces that never were published. They were pieces that mm. didn't end up in a book or, or or a journal. And and I was always conscious that there wasn't a way for people who weren't actually in the room in an embodied sense with that work to get access to it. So I think the, the kind of little nerdy archivist in me always knew that I wanted there to be some way that it could, whatever I made would live in a form that others could access without actually having to be in the room for that performance work. Um, and for sure that, you know, um, it's sort of my dream for this book to be a book that will end up in classrooms, that people can tease over the work and argue over the work and, and make those kinds of connections to history and politics and culture. Um, and hopefully, you know, as you saw in the, in the book there, you know, I name all of my mentors and I name all the constellation of people who've helped to make this work. And so I do hope that people also like underline names and go find out about who all these other folks are so that they realize this this is part of a community that did live, you know, that yeah. did exist and make work.
1: So you mentioned a bit about your childhood growing up in Springfield and and finding uh-huh. Shanghai in the in the library, but I'd love to hear kind of more about how you became a playwright or how you became. I don't know if you mm-hmm. if you even would call yourself primarily a playwright. I, I, mm-hmm. Then maybe that's another question: is you know how did you mm-hmm. find your way to the theater and how did you find your way to, to playwriting?
0: Oh, love! Thank you for that question. So I'm going to go across the street from that library to that high school, and I entered the ninth grade with sort of every teenage nerd movie nightmare attached to me. Like I was the, mm-hmm. the total social outcast, you know, and in all honesty, I spent my ninth and 10th grade years primarily with, with almost no social contact with my fellow classmates. I was really an outcast um, in the ninth grade, especially, but in what I had as many kids find found at that time in the, in the public schools in the, in the early 1980s is I had an art class because we still had art in the public schools. Mm-hmm. And so I loved going into my art class, number one, because my art teachers, they were nerds who grew up, right? Like they were people who saw the world in a different way than, than the jocks and the, the popular kids. And, they could look at me and see that i was an artistic soul so i felt this unspoken recognition from adults that i was like them or I, I was you know part of their group in a way number 2 that i could make things and that they valued them and i loved to draw and to paint and to make collages and sculptures and you know, this was again, a time where that kind of thing was possible. And and there was, you know, in uh, our public school system in Springfield was still one of the best in the nation. And you could really do stuff. So I learned how to, I learned how to do perspective drawing, and I learned how to use oil paint and acrylic paint. And, and they provided us a lot of materials and resources. So all of that to say that I found my sense of expression and maybe a sense of personal power in visual art. And I was on track, you know, to go and study that. I thought that's what I was going to go to college and study. Um, n- not having m- many or any examples of, of people who had made that a career other than those teachers, but believing somehow, and I think this was also the nature of my, my parents and my community growing up, that they really, really believed that we should go do things that no one else in the family had done. You know, there there was a sense of that generation post-civil rights, like go out in the world, go make something, go take the risk, because we didn't do all that for you to, you know, play it safe, you know. So um, I, I had that. But in the 10th grade, I had a study class. And the study class was run by the teacher who ran the drama club. And I would sit in the study class and every once in a while, um, the architecture of the room was it was a classroom, but there was a door in the back of the the classroom that led to a kind of huge storage closet that the drama kids would use as a kind of clubhouse. And (laughs) periodically, the students would come through and sometimes they'd be like dressed in their costumes because they had been doing a show or in a rehearsal and you would hear laughter coming from behind the wall. And when I looked at the kids, they were all geeks like me. They were people who didn't fit and they seemed super confident. And they seemed, they seemed to have a kind of, um, I don't know, a, a, a sense of, a sense of agency that I lacked. And what happened is that that teacher clocked me watching them. She saw the way that I would Be fascinated with them. And at the end of the year, when they were getting ready to have the auditions for the drama club, she came over to me and she put down the flyer on my desk and she said, I dare you. And mind you, I don't think I said a word in that class, right? (laughs) You know, like I never uttered anything. And, you know, my heart started racing. My palms started sweating. I went home and I, you know, that like all the worlds fell away and I, I was terrified and I went home and I told my mother and she said, well, what are you going to do? And I, and she encouraged me to take the leap. And that's when I went to that library. And that's when I pulled Shange off the shelf and I auditioned for the drama club, reading the lady in blue from, for color girls, Wow! <laughs> Which, like who knew that like, that's like the queerest thing you could ever do. You know what I mean? But I, yeah. there's some um,
1: foreshadowing in that for sure. A,
0: just a little bit, just a little bit. Yeah. And I remember, what happened was it was, like an, it was like lightning striking because I had never in my life done anything like that. And some part of me came online that somehow knew what to do. And afterward, everyone in the room was blown away. They, they couldn't believe what they had seen. And I made it into the drama club. And almost like a switch, overnight, I became... You know an actor I became a, a, a person who had a a role to play in the social order of that school um, and that was it. It was like I got the bug and you know, uh oh that was going to be I knew that was going to be the way that I went um, yeah so that's my origin story
1: did you think of yourself as queer at that point or did that come later
0: I don't know that I used that language, Mm -hmm. but I knew, I knew, I knew that I was, um, you know, on, on one level, I knew I was gay because I knew I was attracted emotionally and sexually to other guys, but my queerness, right. Took me longer to figure out, meaning that I didn't, I never really fit or felt comfortable with the codification of gender and gender roles. I didn't understand that you weren't supposed to move from your heart. You were supposed to move from your mind. I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't really conform to any of the expectations of what I should be doing by definition of the society. And that meant, as I told you, a kind of sense of being ostracized early on. But then it meant that I just, I was in this interesting kind of, I call it like a crossroads space Mm -hmm. um, where, where I, I, something grew in me as a result of discovering the theater where I became defiant about not fitting in. I began to enjoy the, the position. I, I began to find the strength of it. And so in some ways I began to practice a queerness that would take me many, many years to be able to look back and name as such.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But it meant that I was, I was learning to stand up and say, I don't see the world the same way that a lot of my peers seem to, right? Cause I don't know for sure what was going on on the inside for them, but I wasn't going to conform. And it's, I'm so grateful to whatever combination of people, forces, historical moment came together to make me that way. Because it could have very easily gone down a different route, but somehow I got like baked into me that who I was, was fine. Um, and the, and that, that set the stage and the, you know, the kind of gay identity and those sorts of things that came later. And even then, you know, I don't think I ever really fit any kind of predetermined notion of queerness. I don't think I still do. But um, for sure, when I was younger, um, it did take me a long, long, I always say I kind of trickled out because I don't think I really understood, <laughs> you know, I didn't quite get it, you know. And, yeah. and maybe one last thing to say about it is that, you know, when I, when I when I thought about the identity of being gay. At that time, there were so few images or stories of, of black or, or POC queer people that I encountered. And when mm-hmm. I did, it tended to be, you know, black lesbian feminist work, like on Audrey Lorde or someone like that. So I knew that that wasn't me. So I could be informed by, I could be shaped by their voices. But it wasn't really until my uh, 20s that I discovered you know, an Essex Hemphill or a Marlon Riggs or, or, or Joseph Beam's collection, brother to brother. And I was like, Oh, we're here. I, I, there are people, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that was also part of it because I didn't identify at all with the imagery and the stories of white gay men that, I, that were in the media at the time. And, you know, I respected them, but I didn't feel like that was me. Uh,
1: th- this is just a, a, question totally out of my curiosity was, was Samuel yeah, sure. Delaney important to you I feel like I see some of him in your work
0: mm-hmm. you know he he wasn't not because he didn't become so but I just didn't I wasn't aware of him it yeah. took me a very long I didn't really under, get to know Delaney's work until probably my 30s actually yeah, yeah. um and and I I knew about Octavia Butler first mm-hmm. um because I read Kindred uh, when I was younger, but but I didn't know Delaney until after I went to grad school, so it was yeah. a long time.
1: It's so amazing to me, looking back. I mean, on my on my own life and what you're saying uh-huh. here, just how much the stuff you happen to have gotten in front of you when you were 16 does kind yeah. of get baked in in a in a really mm-hmm. powerful way. And you know, I I yeah. encounter you know new artists all the time now. You know, as somebody in my late 20s, and they're important to me and they inform my work, but it's never going to be as as deep a connection That's as like right. you know when i was 15 and discovered alan ginsburg or whatever like i feel mm-hmm. like those things whoever it is like you kind of can't control the the pull that those people are always going to have on you kind of whether you like 100%. it or not <laughs> it seems 100%. like you found your way to some, to some good mentors early on but you know Ooh, yeah oh yeah. yeah no
0: i'm so thankful and and it's uh you know, I also I had this weird, weird thing um, where I always felt, as a little kid, you know, my 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 parents used to say I was a I was a very sober kid. You know, I I mean, I was friendly and fun, but I wasn't I wasn't uh, I was very focused, oddly. And so I remember feeling so responsible, and I didn't have language to say that. But but I remember the feeling of being responsible to the stories and to the people, you know, the older people. Mm-hmm. Um, that that I I felt like I was supposed to remember what my father's growing up was like. I was supposed to remember what my you know what my my aunties and uncles by choice like the my parents, friends who became like aunts and uncles, like mm-hmm. remember their, their stories, remember the dynamic and the jokes that people used to tell. So I felt, it felt like, a. I I always was recording while I lived an experience, if that makes sense. And, um, and so when I came across a figure from history, I tended to approach them as though they were an intimate, as though they were a family member or a community member. And, and it, and, and I felt that same sense of responsibility. So I used to, you know, do really, really deep dives. I remember when I, when I learned about like Josephine Baker and Lena Horne, and I, I went to the library and read everything and did picture research and listened to the music because I wanted to, I wanted to understand something about what it meant for them To do what they did, having come up during the era of segregation, having been part of the civil rights movement at the beginning edge of it. And, you know, that kind of thing of the people who fought against all odds and made a space for themselves. And and so I would I would be hungry to find those stories and and, uh, you know, in a way, try to hold on and pass on those those tales so i felt a sense of responsibility in addition to the kind of inspiration that you're talking about mm-hmm.
1: some of your early plays in the volume were produced mm-hmm. in austin and i, I wonder yeah. kind of how you found your way to the austin scene in the 90s and what that scene was like and how it kind of shaped your work this so
0: thank you for that question too um because so that's one of the other things I, I noticed about
1: your book, not just that it's Austin, but, yeah, but that sure. you've done a lot of work. I mean, your career has not been a New York-centered career. You've had things in New York right. sort of recently, but you had, you know, many years where you mm-hmm. were making work outside of New York and, you know, seeming to do, you know, very well and having no trouble, you know, getting work up. Or, I mean, at least that's, you know, that's mm-hmm. my outside perspective. And, and I don't know, I'm, I'm based in New York and sometimes it seems like this is where everything happens and we can forget that right. that's not necessarily true.
0: No, that that's a very important part of of my story. I don't think that my work could have happened here um, because there was, especially at the time that I was beginning my career, um, and this is a thing that's you know I think most theater artists will understand when I say this. You know, they already had their one. You know, like there's a sense that the that the field sometimes picks their black writer, their black queer writer, their they're black female writer. Like it, there's a generational thing. And there, you know, there wasn't really room uh, to do the kind of thing that I knew I wanted to do. I don't think that I chose not to be in New York for that reason, but rather I went where I was, I found welcome. I found imitation. I found, you know, loving community. So I ended up after graduate school, you know, having having about six months where it was, oh my God, you just you know you spent uh, six years of higher education and you have no job. <laughs> you, know, you're, you know the thing that we you know there's, there's, what are you doing? What's why did you choose this? And um, you know, I, I ended up back in Springfield. It was it was really you know humbling and sobering to say, wow, I may I may really never have a career. Um, but then that beautiful thing that occurs in our work. Happened, which is that the community that I had made afforded me an opportunity. A writer that I knew and loved was having her play produced uh, in the Twin Cities. And the director had met me uh, the previous summer and, unbeknownst to me, had wanted me to be in this play based on having met me and interacted with me. And Mm. my friend reached out to me and said, You know, would you, you know, connected us and one thing led to another, and I found myself in January of '94 on a plane to Minneapolis, St. Paul. Had never been there; had, you know, really not traveled much outside the Northeast. And I ended up at Penumbra Theater Company doing this play, uh, "Talking Bones," and had that thing happen where, like, a door opened. I stepped through, and I entered a new chapter of my life. And I found myself in, you know. Uh, one of those incredible theater communities that was was so vibrant in the 1990s. I mean, Minneapolis and St. Paul are still relatively, uh, you know, so vibrant uh, artistic ecosystems. But then it was like, you know, people went to the theater all the time because everybody was, you know, it's winter, you go, you go, you go do things, you know, so it was, it was very much a, a cherished thing. And part of what was what was extraordinary about it is that there was a lot of experimental work and the audiences, because they would see so many things and theater was not an elite thing there. People went to the theater and it was, it was, you know, uh, regional nonprofit theater. It was Lord theater. It was community theater, what have you. And there was also performance art. Uh, Patrick's Cabaret, for example, and the Walker Art Center would bring in, you know, uh, you know big name performance artists uh, uh, from around the, the world, really. So there was this sense that the audiences were game for almost anything. And it felt oddly that I went to the Midwest to find a far more open minded audience base than what I had experienced on, in the Northeast. Um, it, they were far less judgmental and far more about the encounter and the experience and the adventure. And turns out a small theater in Austin was going to produce that same play that I had been in, and they were looking for a director and they contacted Penumbra and Lou Bellamy, uh, who was the founder and the artistic director at the time, suggested me because he had gotten to know me and he, he learned that I was an interdisciplinary artist and, and he said, you know, what about what about Daniel? And they hired me because <laughs> this was the 90s. They just hired me on, based on a phone call. And I, I got on a plane that summer and I went down to Austin and I stepped off and I went through another doorway and I said, oh, my God, I felt like I had come home. And Vicky Boone, who was the found, one of the founders and the artistic director of a company called Frontera at Hyde Park, greeted me at the airport we looked at each other and, and it, and she kind of was like, Oh my God, you're really young. You know, I thought based on our conversation, you were like in your thirties and, and I was like this hippie chick boy, you know, in my, like I was 24 years old, but I knew what I was doing. You know, I love this play. I love making work. I wasn't afraid. And she was like, let's go, let's try this. And similarly, I found a vibrant arts community. That was very homespun, and the the thing that typified Austin at that time was that um, I can't remember the exact percentage, but it was a it was a substantive percentage of the city was under thirty. Part of that was due to the university, but there was also this odd migration of a lot of folks to Austin, to the Twin Cities, to Seattle, um, you know, um, uh, to DC. There were some. There were just these sort of nodes of what eventually would be called the regional alternative theater circuit, right. Or the rap conference. Right. Um, And, and so what, what happened was it was like nobody's, nobody's parents were looking so to speak, right. Like there was nobody, nobody was representing, you know, the, the theater that they had there that was kind of like the Lord regional theater vibe didn't really care what all of us were doing. You know, they they were the center for people who wanted to go see the, you know, whatever play of the day was being produced all over the nation. We were a bunch of ragtag young people who were just wildly making things. And so I found the community that felt most like my own urges, which it was very DIY. It was very collaborative. It was Hugely interdisciplinary, um, and and what was interesting is that there were a number of small companies, and everyone knew each other, and for whatever reason, the vibe was not competitive, as much as it was a kind of, you know, almost more like a. I'm thinking about like how it how it is in hip hop where like you know, somebody will dance and like bust some amazing move and that will raise the bar for everybody. And then everybody knows that they have to do something equal to that or better, but it wasn't about like shutting other people down. It was about saying, oh my gosh, what does it mean that, you know, this person just did a show where they used seven film projectors and projected them on the side of that wall. That's amazing. Let's do that in our next show, you know, and let's, let's jump off a roof. Let's take the seats out of the theater. So what happened is between Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Austin, Texas, I got to make a ton of work. And what I often tell my students is, I know that the economy is so radically different. I know it's so much harder to have a kind of life where you can, you know, you can have a couple side hustles and spend the majority of your time making things. But there was something about having the freedom to spend the years that so many of my friends who stayed on the East Coast were spending waiting tables, I got to make shows and I got to build them with nobody telling me I couldn't, you know? And uh, and I look back now and I mean, that's why I chose uh, a couple of the pieces from that period to put in the book is because I wanted to show that this happened, that we actually made this work and that, that the shows I made were also critically celebrated by the communities um, and seen the critical voices in that at that time understood how to read and respond to abstract Black queer work, which I now you can't even find that in New York.
1: You know, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. 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 You certainly. I mean, Austin's a little different than the rest of Texas, but it is a bit of a surprise oh, that you had such a receptive yeah. audience in Texas in the '90s.
0: Oh, it was it was phenomenal. And honestly, one of the things I loved about Frontera is that you would go into the theater and it was small. It was an old post office that had been turned into a theater. It was like a small brick building. And there was an odd, like not even really a triangle because it was the angles were off, but like there was an odd stage kind of mashed in the corner, maybe seventy-five. 80 seats in the, in the space Mm of a a booth where if somebody sneezed in the booth, you heard it on stage, you know what I mean? It was like, everything (laughs) was right there, but some of the most wildly creative stuff and in the audience would be, you know, old timer Texan husband and wife in their eighties guy has a 10 gallon hat, woman's wearing the, like, you know, the bolo tie sitting next to gutter punk kids who, you know, are, are with unhoused, who are going back and forth on the rails between the Twin Cities in Austin, believe it or not. And then old black church ladies who came from the east side to come see, you know, because they heard there was going to be a black play and everybody be in the room together. And it yeah, disabused wow. me of the notion of what, you know, I think as an East Coast person, I thought Texas was. Blew my mind.
1: Well, and it also seems like it, I don't know if you maybe went into this with this assumption, but it, it seems like it kind of upset our traditional idea of like who enjoys experimental work or like what your audience is oh. as somebody who's working in that tradition. A hundred percent.
0: And, you know, if there's something that I, I feel, you know, if I ever get get angry about, uh, you know, I, I don't tend to get angry about uh, these sorts of things now, but this thing I, I it still gets me is the sense from a lot of the gatekeepers not only from my work but for for work of my peers that this is not accessible this is some um, highfalutin you know elite academic blah 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 and what i know from lived experience is that people get it and mm-hmm. that in fact it means so much because it honors their intelligence it it invites them into an experience that is not the typical shape and it's not to disparage a straight play. I, you know, that's not my bag is to throw shade at a straight play, but it's to say that not everybody feels bound to that as being the exemplar of what theater can be. And I remember, um, if I can tell one story from the twin cities about the play Phoenix Fabrique, that's included in the volume. Um, you know, I, I built it at Pillsbury House Theater in, in, uh, in uh, Minneapolis. And Pillsbury House is a theater that I love in part because of the model that it, it, it uh, uh, represents, which is it's a settlement house model. The theater is in the same building with a social service organization. So mm-hmm. you have, you know, like AA and NA meetings. You have a daycare. You have... Um, you know, a a clinic, you have a food bank, you have um, from, you know, different sorts of social or political gatherings can happen in that building. And the theater maintained at that time an open door policy for all rehearsals. So if you were in the building, you could slip into the theater and watch what was unfolding. And as I was building that play, three young girls I would say between like eight and eight and 10 years old were coming in to watch our rehearsals, you know, on break from their summer camp or whatever they were there for, you know, Mm -hmm. and they would sit in the back row and look at what we were doing. And, you know, that play, that play is obtuse in many, you know, intentionally it's a very, very coded play. Like the meaning rises up as you sit in the room and when you get really what's going on, it's like, it's a it's a sucker punch, but it is something that many people, you know, artistic directors or literary managers were like, This does not make sense to me. Blah, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. And I I was in the rehearsal and I was making some changes, and I remember telling the great actress Viney Burroughs, who was playing one of the characters. I said, Viney, I think I wanna I wanna move you over here and I wanna take that text and take it away. And I heard from behind me, uh-uh. <laughs> And I turned around <laughs> and this little girl was looking at me. And she said she wouldn't do that. I said, excuse me? And then her friend said, no, because earlier when she did da 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 da, that meant that she had to do this. And the little one said, that's right. And I looked at them and I said, y'all are in my play and you're better dramaturgs than I am. Right. Wow. And I put it back. And Miss Viney was like, well, the young people have spoken. And, and over and over and over again. I had that experience that the people who actually got my work were young people, mm-hmm. were the working class people who I was told would never get my work, were community members who came from very different constituencies that were represented in the work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think, I think I just, I summarily reject the notion that abstraction is elitist. Yeah.
1: I mean, we talked about For Color Girls earlier, that was a hit on Broadway. I mean, that's That's a play that was huge. And that's a very strange piece of theater. It's not at all a kind of linear, well-made play.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it it is, you know, it remains, I, I was saying to a friend of mine the other day, I hope that at some point there will be a documentary about For Color Girls, not so much the production, the original production alone. But the fact that I would wager it's one of the most produced plays in the world, mm-hmm. because it's always being done somewhere. Mm-hmm. It has been done in, from community centers to big theaters. It's, it's so important to the development of so many people. And part of that is that, that shange made it in such a way that it is both this extraordinarily beautiful abstract composition and totally accessible because mm-hmm. it's so direct and so immediate and you know I think that that very often um you know people people want to minimize her structural wisdom but it was very very clear how she crafted that piece
1: yeah um i'd like to ask uh, maybe a i don't know if it's too broad of a question but mm-hmm. i I, w- I would like to talk a little bit about the role of spirituality in your play, in your place. Mm -hmm. I I wonder if maybe do you view your, your theater as in a way kind of like a spiritual practice. There's a lot of kind of religious and spiritual imagery, but I I wonder kind of what's your relationship to that material now.
0: Uh, I absolutely do. And I think of it really as the place where I've been able to ask my metaphysical questions, my existential questions, and to grapple with the various inheritances of, of language or philosophy around the spirit and the role that, you know, even thinking of spirit divorced from the body, but uh, as, as maybe something that, that, you know, I had to interrogate very early on. But to say that I'm deeply, deeply aware that in both my own black American tradition um, and the queer tradition, there is an intimate relationship at very base level between the living and the dead Mm -hmm. that, as I mentioned to you, I would, I was, you know, Josephine Baker died when I was six years old, but I was obsessed with her as a teenager, and I didn't feel like I was only studying her. I felt like I was having a conversation with her. Mm -hmm. And I was having a conversation with her because I understood something about her that I didn't see in any book, which is that she was this visionary activist trying to posit something about the human community. And now people... I have been writing volumes about that fact of, of her. You know, in the last five to seven years, there are a couple really powerful books that came out, but I knew it somehow. And so I felt like part of my work was to say, I need to put your story somehow or your image somehow in my work and contextualize it that way. So it was a way to say, when we look back at our historical figures, Josephine Baker, Malcolm X shows up in some of my pieces, whoever it is, Marian Anderson and Bel Canto. I want to hydrate them. I want to take them out of that mm. flattened, two-dimensional relationship and, and remember them as full beings. So there's there's this kind of ceremony of remembering. And then also there's this deeply, deeply spiritual aspect to what it means to invite myself and others to see, as I talk about in in the introduction to the book, to see multiply, to be willing to see that more than one thing is true at the same time in the same place. And that one of the reasons I see us in such a dire and fractious national discourse at this time is this flattening effect that... that, um, you know, certainly the kind of broader narratives about left and right, like any of these binaries have had, but also the flattening and and quickening effect of social media, even that, Mm -hmm. that, that our, our sense of another human being is so profoundly mediated and curated and altered that the holiness of the kind of storytelling that I referred to earlier in my community that listening the willingness to love your people and realize like they can be complete messes in this part of their life and then they can be transcendent in that part of their life and and those things can live together whereas now I find we want so very much to you know gauge and judge one another and, Mm -hmm. and dismiss anyone or anything that has such a profound contradiction. So it's a kind of, um, you know, I would, I would say there's almost a humanistic urge, but I am not afraid to say that I also think of it as metaphysical and, and I I've read and I continue to read, um, from so many different spiritual traditions, but I think I keep coming back to, those things which have been common among indigenous religious practice across the globe in, Mm -hmm. in throughout history, like what does it mean to attend to the cycles of, of the planet, the cycles of nature, the, the life cycle itself. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and when we, when we consider the dead, we are also considering ourselves in time, knowing that we are ephemeral And we're also considering what might come or might not come next. So Mm -hmm. all of this is ceremony. And I call them altars for that reason, that I think um, I don't think of entering any of the projects without that core question for myself, even if I never name it out loud, that I want to know what my spiritual question is before I start. Yeah. Yeah
1: and And Egypt is part of that as well that's that's a mm-hmm. motif that shows up in your work and and I gather it's something that you've been interested in since you were a kid. What did yeah. Egypt mean to you as a kid and and how has that meaning changed over time?
0: I found a deep sense of what I can only call familiarity mm-hmm. in the same way that I talked about like seeing Josephine Baker or or you know when I was a teenager first getting to learn about Sylvester or, or Mm -hmm. someone like that, where I'm like, ah, yeah. Like the, like in a way, like, were I to be in their time, I would be like them or in their place. I would be like them. And I, I always felt that with the imagery that I saw and the stories that I heard from ancient Egypt and you know, that's for sure. Anyone can listen, be like, okay, that's some artistic woo woo, whatever. But what I, what I felt, you know, I remember as a, as a young person studying mythology in maybe fifth grade, fourth, fifth grade and learning, you know, that, that book that many of us had at the time, Dolaire's Greek myths, right? Like the kind of picture book. Uh, And I remember learning the Greek myths and the Norse myths and, and, they were things i i could enjoy but i didn't feel like they were about me Mm -hmm. whereas when i read the mythology the general mythology from ancient egypt i understood something i was like oh i that i that's i get that like i understand isis osiris and horus i get that i understand set like i but you know i understand i can see them in my life right Mm -hmm. and um And also, as I got older, um, you know, when I went to college, I had intended to be a a theater major to study acting, actually, was what I I thought I would be doing. And I encountered in my undergrad, like, just the most blatant racism. And I was told explicitly that I would never be cast in a leading role in the department and I should find something else to do, even though I was, you know, one of the better uh, actors in my class. And, um, you know, that is a wound that happened to a lot of Black and queer people. You know, that, that sense of being told, absolutely no, not you. And another miracle occurred, which is that I met uh, an extraordinary professor. Uh, her name was Dr. Constance Berkeley. And she was a professor of Africana Studies who had a background in theater Mm. Uh, she had done her um, master's work at Columbia and written um, uh, about, uh, about Shakespeare and the development of racial theory. It was a phenomenal uh, uh, dissertation that she wrote. Um, but uh, she saw what happened to me. And she said, young man, <laughs> and this is a quote that I will never forget. She said, that's how they are. How will you be? Right. Mm. She yeah. said, you can do this and I will help you. And single- Handedly, she developed a course of study for me within that Africana Studies major to prepare me for a career in the theater with the idea that I would eventually go to grad school, which I ended up going right after, uh, Mm -hmm. oddly. But but in that time period, you know, being an Africana Studies student meant um, as an interdisciplinary program, you you had to learn to study history in a very rigorous way philosophy political economies um, in addition to literature and the arts so any creative inquiry had to be situated within the context of an analysis that was was really deep and these were those these were like the old school professors they didn't they didn't truck with you know they weren't like us now you know? and um, and uh, and so one of the things of course is is as I began to study, the history in general of Africa, but specifically of, of uh, North Africa and East Africa because of my mentor's areas of specialty um, in terms of literature and the arts, um, it very, very quickly became clear to me that I, I was coming into contact with scholars who were, were challenging the notion of what Egypt was mm-hmm. in prehistory in, in early and in ancient history and really pushing back against the idea that Egypt was not African. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that became a huge, at that time, hugely, hugely contentious scholarly debate. But what, what also was affirmed for me is this is your, this is actually African history and the roots of so much of the symbolism go deep, deep into the center of Africa, deep into time, um, because the Nile starts in the center of the continent and flows to the Mediterranean, culture flows along rivers. Mm-hmm. And so there are all these antecedents. And that also felt like an important thing to say. There are so many aspects of this that, that will, all, you know, they are still to this day contentious. They're, they've not been solved um, in terms of the broader uh, academic conversations, willingness to engage this history of racism in a in a in a forthright way, mm-hmm. but for me, it helped me understand that I was tapping into, you know, my my actual history, and um, and there were all these correlates, of course, with you know later on, I began to meet people who were students of and 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 uh, devotees of initiates of. Yoruba-based religious practice and looking at some of the similarities between the Orisha and and the the Neturu, which is the pantheon of gods in ancient Egypt, and just starting to see that, oh, these stories, these narratives show up again and again and again, and they are very important to what I see as kind of like my mission work in my art practice, uh, which has so much to do with taking things that have been violently fragmented, remembering them, gathering them back together, and figuring out a way to bring voice and bring light through them once again. Mm. That's a core precept, and that comes directly out of that mythological system.
1: Wow, that's that's beautiful, Daniel. Thanks for that. Um, I'd like to ask you, I've already taken up a lot of your time, but I, I do wanna ask you about Jomama Jones and i oh, wonder if you yeah. could kind of uh-huh. give give us a bit of of her origin story and and how she's evolved over time because you include a couple of texts where she mm-hmm. speaks in the play and and there's definitely some noticeable uh evolution in in that yeah. character over time <laughs>
0: indeed indeed and i i decided very deliberately not to try to clean up her past you know what i mean
1: like (laughs) Uh, she's she's yeah a bit of a firecracker when we first encounter her so so how did that uh, how did that character or i don't know if you refer to her as a character or an alter ego or or what but kind of how did that character Mm -hmm. come to be and and how what does that character mean to you now
0: Awesome. Well, I, I very much think of her as an alter ego, and I started working on Bloodshock Boogie, which is uh, uh, the first piece in the book, um, in the in the early nineties, uh, little bits and pieces, and then it was in 90, 1995 that I I really dove dove into making the project, and and in some ways that piece is a kind of portrait of the community that I came from, um, and one of the facets of of growing up where I did and when I did is that my friends and I watched Soul Train on Saturday mornings Mm -hmm. and during the warmer months, we would invariably watch it and then bust out of our front doors and go find each other in the street and like reenact whatever dances we, you know, were the new dances, you know. Um, And I I felt like it was important if I'm going to sketch that place in time to also show that that was the media that we cared about. You know, um, we listened to the radio, we watched uh, PBS, but we also watched Soul Train. And um, when I think about, uh, when I wanted to put that in the, in the piece, um, I didn't want to do what was beginning to be popular at the time, which were like, you know, drag impersonations of celebrities. That wasn't something I felt interested in. Uh, But I knew I wanted there to be somebody who would be on Soul Train. And it was like an instantaneous download transmission. My hand went to the paper and I wrote Jomama Jones. And I, I looked down and I was like, what, what? And she kind of <laughs> she kind of came to me
1: yeah.
0: in all at all at once. You know, I could see her and I could feel her. And for sure, if you tease out her DNA, all of the great artists that I grew up listening to and loving—from uh, Miss Horn and Miss Baker to Diana Ross and D.L. Warwick and Diane Carroll—and you know, I think you can hear. Uh, Uh, Diane Carroll and Josephine Permison by in her vocal tone and everything. She's very grand, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. but she was distinct. And at that time I was sharing an apartment with, with uh, the great actor, Saida Araka Ecolona. I was my roommate and I, I ran out of my room and I said, "Sai, I think I know who this is. And I described it to Saida and Saida said, we're going now, get your coat. And we went downstairs, we got in her car and we drove to this store that was one of those stores that was around in the eighties and nineties where it was like, it had costumes and trinkets and, you know, every, every little thing, calendars, whatever. And within an hour, we had bought a dress, heels, a wig, lipstick and sunglasses and we went home, put them on, I put them on, and we went out for a walk in the streets of Minneapolis. And my memory was walking by a construction site, and the bulldozer careened toward the gate. <laughs> All the construction <laughs> workers stopped and jumped out and started catcalling Joe Mama. And they were like, they were like, oh, lady, girl, come over here, da da whatever. And and so I looked at me, and she said, done. Like, we did it. We got him, yeah, you know? That's the litmus and, test, uh, for sure. That was the litmus test, exactly. And uh, and uh, and I, I first performed her at, uh, at Patrick's Cabaret, which was a, a beautiful performance space, in a workshop that was curated by the great Jola Branner, who was one of the founding members of Pomo Afro Homo. Um, and I got up on that stage, and I had two wonderful uh, artists who... Who kind of were her backing singers, and we we performed the section that ended up in "Bloodshot Boogie" of Joe and the Vibrations on Soul Train, accepting a Lifetime Achievement Award. <laughs> and three of my mentors were there in the room that night, and I remember they looked at me, and and there was this sense from them of like you found your thing, like mm-hmm. they could tell instantaneously, and um, and yeah, she was. By it, you know, she was the hit of that show, <laughs> and I put it to the toward the end because after nobody wanted to see anything after Jumma, you know, so dramaturgically I had to be like right. she has to go near the end, Um and and we did that. We toured that show around uh, for a couple of years. We did it for a couple of years, and then I put her I put her away, and I think part of it was that I didn't want to be pegged mm-hmm. um, in that one modality, and. I, you know, I wrote a bunch of other things, did a bunch of other things. And, and then I hit this moment in my, my mid late thirties where, you know, I'd moved back to New York. I was, I was really pushing to kind of have a more, you know, kind of maybe a more traditional path, which was ridiculous because it was like nothing that ever worked for me ever came out of that path. But mm-hmm. I thought I was going to come and do it. And Everyone said, no, 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 no. And I had a wonderful agent uh, at the time. And she said to me, I believe in what you do. There are so many people out in this field who know you and respect you and believe in what you do. But none of these artistic directors are going to do your work. And they've said no for years. And you need to reckon with that because it's just you are not their choice. And that kind of goes back to the thing I was telling you about, about them picking one, you know. Mm-hmm. And so unless I was going to be a derivative of, um, you know, and everyone would compare my work purely based on identity. Like, who are the other black queer writers or who are the other blah, 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 blah. And, uh, and it was at that time I, I, I kind of fell into a very, very heavy depression. And one night, I kid you not, Mama came to me. And just, she showed up in my, my head and she said, it's my time, give me the reins. And I did. And I, I didn't look back. And within really about a year and a half, two years, it went from, I was persona non grata in New York City to this incredible alchemy where you know one thing led to another thing led to another thing, and Shanta Thake at Joe's Pub and Sarah Benson at Soho Rep opened their doors, and the rest for Jamama is history.
1: So we're we're almost out of time, but I do want mm-hmm. to give you a chance to. I, I know you have a number of other uh, projects either in the works or or coming out soon. So I I just like to give you the chance to kind of tell our listeners about some of those projects, and I I, I think you have another book out as well, right?
0: Yes. So So, yeah, what's going on? So (laughs) there's a companion book to this book. It's a beautiful little volume called Particle and Wave, in which I had a conversation with um, a scholar, poet, artist, whom I I just adore. Her name is Dr. Alexis Pauline Gumbs. Uh, She's one of the most extraordinary thinkers of our time, and I, I. asked if she would be willing to have this conversation, uh, partly because Kate Kramer and I were talking about ways, again, to help put the book in context. And when I thought about who I wanted to do that with, you know, she is a radical scholar, a black feminist uh, visionary. And I felt like I wanted her to reflect on this work so that when people encountered that book as a gateway to this work they would get the right context. Mm -hmm. So that's out there. Um, And then the other big project that I've made is this uh, digital music, video, and interactive uh, website (laughs) uh, called www.aten.ate.n.life. And the Aten in ancient Egypt was the name of the sun disk itself. And during the reign of the pharaoh Akhenaten, uh, he, he worshipped that sun disk. And the whole premise was that the light of the sun is actually the divine light and that there should be no intermediary or intercessor between you and that light. And it's a meditation on our solar system through music persona and uh and and you know a lot of fun videos (laughs) so i invite folks to check that out and it's free you can just you can go to the site see the music and um and we have a digital album that you can listen to stream or purchase if you wish and there'll be a vinyl release coming out very soon as well so that's what i've been up to
1: (laughs) i imagine as a child of the 70s having a vinyl release is is pretty exciting for you isn't it
0: it is the most exciting thing. I think I feel like it's my great, my teenage dream come true. And I got to hear the test pressing about uh, two weeks ago, and I cried because because there is something about hearing your music come out of a turntable. My God, yeah. It was like, that's the real full circle, pun intended. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, congratulations on all of that, Daniel. I, I definitely would encourage our audience to check that out. And thanks so much for being on New Books in Performing Arts to talk about Love Like Light. I really enjoyed the book so much, and this has been such a fun conversation.
0: Thank you so much. I've loved it, loved talking to you. And and I, I again, thank you for your generosity and in inviting me to be part.